the first martyr of the Christian church, of the early church. And we looked at last week his death, being stoned to death uh, by religious leaders and, and the mob, simply because Stephen was a faithful Christian. And in that faithfulness, he went and taught the gospel, shared the gospel, ministered the gospel, and they couldn't stand it. So they gathered and they stoned him to death. As we will see, kind of moving this point forward, that in God's gracious sovereignty and providence, this death, this, this horrible, violent, de- violent death of Stephen, serves as a tipping point for the church. Now, there are those on one side, those are the religious leaders whose father is Satan, that they see this as a victory. Stephen was a leader in the early church, and they've killed him. They've, they've, they've taken out part of the enemy. They've killed him for his, for his faith, for his teaching, for his ministry, just like they killed the one he followed, Jesus Christ. So they see this as a victory. They're slowly eliminating the enemy. But on the other side, that of the Christians in church, they will come to see how God uses even Stephen's death for good. It's the fulfillment of what Paul writes later on in Romans 8.28. And we know, we have that certainty of knowledge. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. What we're going to see beginning this morning and moving forward is that God will use the death of Stephen for a greater good. He would take something horrible and use it for good for his glory and for the joy of his people in the church. We're reminded of what Joseph told his brothers. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. What those religious leaders did, they intended immensely for evil. That was the sole intent was evil. But God is going to take what they meant for evil and he's going to use it for the greater and eternal good. We see that beginning this morning in our passage. Let me pray for our time together now in God's word. Lord, we, we pause here and we want to pray that you, through your spirit, would open our hearts and open our minds and open our ears that we may both hear and believe so we may receive Christ. And rest upon him as he's offered to us here in this passage in Acts. And may it encourage us in our faith and help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For we ask this now in the name of the one who is the incarnate God, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Acts chapter 8. We will actually begin with the verse before and then read through verse 3. Let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. As we get 
further and deeper into our study of the book of Acts. It's good that we kind of hit a rest area, so to speak, along the way in our journey and kind of pull off to ourselves and, and kind of remind ourselves of the fundamentals of this book, the foundation of this book, such as why. We're getting to eight chapters into the book of Acts, and we need to remember why this book was written. Now, we remember the who, right? It's been written by Luke, and Luke was a doctor by training. He was not one of the original 12 apostles. He was a later convert to the Christian faith. But inspired and, and guided by the Holy Spirit, Luke goes out and he writes two books, the Gospel according to Luke and the book of Acts. And what Luke did for each of those, for the Gospel and for Acts, is because he wasn't there, he went and interviewed as many eyewitnesses as he could. Luke, in his very thorough, deliberate manner, was intent on going and getting firsthand information from those who were there, from, from the apostles, from, from Mary, from others. He wanted that firsthand information about the life and ministry of Jesus that he recorded in the gospel, and then about the birth and the growth of the early church, that part of the growth he wasn't there for, uh, for the book of Acts. So, so why the book of Acts? Well, it's given to us by God through Luke as a narrative of the birth and growth of the church after the ascension of Jesus. But, and I do hope you feel this way, reading the book of Acts doesn't feel like you're reading through a rote telling of historical facts. I hope it doesn't feel to you like you're, you're back in school and there's a chalkboard and, and the white dust is flying all over the place and it says, you know, AD, or, or 3 BC, the birth of Jesus. Uh, A.D. 27, Jesus goes into ministry. A.D. 30, uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. A.D. 30, the birth of the early church. I hope it doesn't read to you like that. Because I, I, I find this is a compelling read. It, it's a page-turner sort of read because Dr. Luke knows how to tell a good story. It's a true story. He knows how to take all these historical facts and truths and he puts them into a form that, that makes for a good story and good read, right? You could start reading in chapter 1 and you find yourself, you're, you're going, you're going, you're, you're going. And in being a good storyteller, what Luke has been doing along the way is he has been building tension. A good story will often have this tension building and sometimes we don't even realize that the author's building tension. Though we get to a point and we realize, oh, this, that something's going on or something's getting ready to happen. And so when we take the two books of Luke, uh, the Gospel and the Acts, and we combine them together, we find a tense story. Luke begins the tension in the, book of, uh, in the Gospel with the life and ministry of Jesus, right? With his birth, with his life, and with his ministry. Especially when he gets to the ministry, he starts to build tension by introducing the Pharisees and the Sadducees and then Judas. This tension that, that leads to persecution and ultimately to Jesus' death. But then that tension is resolved, isn't it, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then we get to the next book, the book of Acts, and it, it begins with Jesus' ascension to heaven. And then we're detailed that the church is born at Pentecost. And we keep that in mind. We keep the, the gospel according to Luke in mind that the religious leaders hated Jesus. 
pursued Jesus, persecuted and killed him. And then we get to the church being born at Pentecost and we find the gospel spreading. And not just a handful of people here and there are coming to, to faith. We're talking thousands upon thousands of people are coming to faith. And the church is growing at just tremendous rate. And we keep in mind that tension from the book of Luke. We start to look over there in the shadows and find lurking there religious leaders. They've killed Jesus. They refuse to believe he's been resurrected. They killed him. Now the question is there, what will they do? What would they do with these followers of Jesus as the good news of Jesus Christ begins to spread like wildfire? It's like standing in your yard and, and you're seeing those, those dark clouds gather on the horizon. And you know a storm is headed your way. You're pretty sure it's going to be a bad storm. The, the tension is building up to this. And it begins in the temple with Peter and John going for prayer. And there's that lame man, the lame beggar. And Peter and John say, we, don't, we can't offer you any silver or gold, but we can offer you something better. We can offer you Jesus Christ. And they heal him. And a man gets up and begins to be a, a follower of Jesus. And the religious leaders don't like that. So uh, they, the, the Peter and John begin to face the, the, the beginning stages of the wrath of the religious leaders. And then attention is amped up even more with Stephen, who, who we believe, again, is around the, the temple. And he's just guilty of being a faithful Christian. He's teaching the gospel. He's participating in gospel ministry. The storm has arrived. The skies open up, and it's a deluge. It's, it is pouring cats and dogs. Because what we find in chapter 8 is that they are now all out for the church. We could say something like, we could say something with the floodgates had opened, right? Like, like, like sharks with blood in the water, like, like a dog to a bone. These sons of perdition have now come out to lay waste to the church. The tension has arrived. And Luke is deliberate with this language, as we noted last week. Did you notice that the way he describes the actions against the church? He first describes it as a persecution. Then when he gets to Saul, he amps it up by using the word ravaging. The church was being ravaged by the religious leaders and their followers. That's a strong word, isn't it? Ravaging means more than, than, than trying to be a hindrance. Our religious leaders going, hey, we don't like what you're doing. Would you kindly please stop? It doesn't even refer to them working in the background. It infers total destruction. I'm reminded of the pictures from Hawaii and the wildfire, wildfire there. Hawaii is one of the most beautiful places on earth, or so I've been told. I've never been there. But the pictures and what other people tell me. It's absolutely beautiful, green, lush. You look at those pictures from the wildfire. There's nothing green. There's nothing lush. There's, there's nothing beautiful left behind. It's just burnt. It's gray and it's black and it's covered in ash. It, it, it's a picture of total destruction. And that's the word that Luke uses here. That something that is so good and beautiful is trying to be utterly destroyed. 
So as Luke has gone out and interviewed the, the apostles and, 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 and other followers of Jesus and listened to their stories and their account, and he, and he took it all in, Luke sat back and he said, there's only one word I can use that will adequately describe the work of the religious leaders, and it's ravaging. They didn't just want to stop the church. They wanted to destroy a church. They wanted to stomp it out. They wanted to be rid of it like as if it had never, as if it had never existed. So things aren't just bad, they're very bad, they're very bleak, they're very depressing. And as best as we can, can we imagine how hard that must have been for the apostles in the church? Everything was going well. Every sermon they preached, people responded to. Day by day, the Lord were adding to their numbers. Thousands were coming to the faith. And then this happens. From their perspective, at that moment, all the early church knew was that Satan was at work and he was actively destroying the church. Now, you and I have this later on perspective. We know Satan will fail and and the church will prevail and the church will continue on to this very day. They didn't have that view. They were in the midst of it. They had faith. But they didn't have this perspective. As we will see in a moment, there's a great irony here because Satan's work against the church actually ends up working in favor of the church and the gospel. But first, the Christians had to get through this great persecution that's to the level of ravaging of total destruction. And so it's in this context that Luke introduces us to Saul. He was present at the stoning of Stephen. Luke says that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And then we're told it's, it's Saul who's ravaging the church. He's going house to house. He's, he's got his jackboots on and he's kicking down doors and he's searching for Christians to drag them off to prison. You know, Luke is describing Saul as the ultimate bad guy against the church. And we get the picture that at Stephen's stoning, not only was, 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 was Saul there, but he was grinning. He was enjoying it. And at the end, as Stephen lay there dead, they looked over to Saul, and he was nodding his head as in, job well done. And then we find him going from house to house, kicking down doors to drag Christians away to prison. He is certainly not the Christian's best friend here. Now, Saul is certainly not the only one who approved of the stoning or no ravaging the church. He's not the only bad guy at work. There's many others. But, but Luke is using Saul to serve as the figurehead, the, the human image of the demonic, satanic work, evil that was at work then. We can think of it this way. We think back in history. We think back to World War II and we think of the Nazi party. Who is it we generally think of with the Nazi party? You almost don't want to say his name in church, do you? I'll say it. Whoa, somebody, okay, somebody loudly said Hitler. All right. Um, Right, so it's Hitler. We think of Hitler. Now, he certainly wasn't the only Nazi. He was certainly the leader, but he wasn't the only one. He wasn't omnipresent. Hitler wasn't able to be present at every concentration camp, every Jewish ghetto. He wasn't able to be present at every horrible thing done to the Jews. There were many Nazis. But he was the leader. 
And he served as the figurehead, that human image of all their evil works. So until the day humanity, until the day Jesus comes back, or maybe past that, I don't know. When we think of the Nazi party, we're going to think of that little evil mustache guy named Adolf Hitler. And for the Christians, that's Saul here. He is the figurehead of the demonic evil at work against the church. And, interestingly enough, there are similarities between his work and the work of Hitler. He is persecuting one particular group of people, hunting them down, breaking up families, sending men and women off to prison knowing some would die there because of the horrible conditions where they are going to. Saul of Tarsus was to the Christians what Hitler would be to the Jews. And he was so sincere in his persecution of Christians because he hated them. And what Luke tells us here is that this all happened so quickly. Look again at verse 1 and, and, and see how Luke moves time here. Saul approved, of his, Saul approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So Luke gives us a timeline. It was some day, we don't know what day, but at some point during that day, Stephen is stoned to death. And that, that triggers some sort of bloodlust in the folks there, because Luke says they go from stoning Stephen to, to persecuting and ravaging the church. Now, as best as we can, let's think about this from the church's perspective. It's a normal day. Stephen gets up, has his breakfast, and he tells the others, I'm going to go to the temple. And I'm going to tell others about Jesus. I'm going to, I'm going to participate and do what I can there. As we've seen, this is a somewhat normal day for the early church. That's what Peter and John did. That's all Stephen's doing. So maybe on his way out, he, he sees, uh, let's say, Thomas and Matthew. And they say, Stephen, what are you doing? He tells them his plans. They go, well, great. When you get back, why don't, we, why don't we meet up at our favorite pizza joint over there in the corner, and we'll catch up on what's going on. So Stephen goes off as normal to the temple. He's there teaching and doing wonderful things. And, and with some of the, uh, the, the Greek Jews, that this dispute breaks out. They don't like what Stephen is preaching and teaching and doing, so they go to religious leaders to complain. Religious leaders have him brought before them. They make these false claims against Stephen. And Stephen answers by giving a summary to Old Testament and how God has been at work. And their response is to drag him out of city to stone him to death. And as Luke tells it, that's all in one day. That's happening within a few hours. That's maybe between breakfast and lunch. And the next thing the church knows, the Christians know, is that those same people who killed Stephen were now out looking for them. They, they, they spread out from the, from the stoning and they're going on the hunt for Christians. Yet the, the, their day began in, in devotion and prayer, <clears throat> sharing their plans for a day, telling Stephen goodbye, hey, have a good day at the temple. <clears throat> By the evening, Stephen is dead. And they're now running for their lives. And in the middle of all this, Luke tells us that after the stoning and the people go away, devout Christian men come out, they gather at Stephen's body, and they give him a proper burial service, a proper funeral service. It's quite the day, isn't it? Not to make your head spin. 
It's one of the worst days of their life. It's amazing how a few hours changes everything. Because as Luke says, because of the persecution that day, and the ravaging of the church that began that day and would continue onward, the Christians were, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for 12 apostles who, who stayed behind Jerusalem. So by the time it's all said and done, the early church in Jerusalem had gone from thousands and thousands and thousands down to a scant few, maybe just 100 people. And when we read that on face level, it seems like, what a tragedy. This growing church, just doing so many wonderful things, has been ravaged, and, and the vast majority of the Christians are now scattered throughout the land as just the 12 apostles and a small remnant staying behind in Jerusalem. We read this and we go, we, we can go, Satan has won. Satan has destroyed the church. But here's, here's why it's good for churches to have pastors who have studied the Greek and Hebrew. I'm by no means saying I'm an expert in it. But I did pass it and they allowed me to graduate. So I know a little bit there. But there's something interesting happening in the Greek here that Luke is again deliberately using to describe what happened. In verse 1 and later in verse 4, he uses a word for scattered, meaning dispario. It's a compound word. It's the same word we find in Matthew 13 in the parable of the sower. If you remember that parable, Jesus teaches this parable talking about how the gospel goes out. The sower goes out and spreads the seed. And sometimes it lands and, 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 and birds take it and take it away. Uh, sometimes it lands on, on soil that it doesn't take root in. Sometimes it, it lands in soil, it grows up, but weeds choke it up. And then there's the final one where it's a good harvest. Jesus uses this parable to talk about the gospel going forth and how he uses it and how, and how the gospel grows. That same word is what Luke chooses to use here. It's the word used to describe the actions of the sower who goes out and sows seed. Literally the scatterer who goes out to scatter seed. See, Luke is deliberately using this word to tie together what's happening here in Acts to the parable of the sower. That the gospel is being spread. That what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Think about it with me this way. Before the persecution and ravaging, where was the church? in Jerusalem. There's one church. This is the first ARP church of Jerusalem. Now, it might have been a multi-campus church, but it's just one church. It was in Jerusalem. It was growing. It was growing. It, it, but it wasn't going where. It was in Jerusalem. Now, go back with me to Jesus in the Great Commission. What did he command his disciples to do? Go and make disciples of what? All nations. Not one nation all nations that they're to scatter to the four corners of the earth and that's being fulfilled here because of this persecution now thousands of sowers are being deployed throughout the ancient world and they went out scattering the seed of the gospel by this one act the gospel is now going out to the furthest reaches of the known world why? Why is the gospel spreading? Why is it going so far out? Because of Stephen and his faithfulness. 
his death, and the work of Saul and the religious leaders to ravage and destroy the church. God is in control when he raises up a work. God is also in control when he tears down a work. We believe that God is always at work in the good and the bad. That he is always at work for good even when the church is being ravaged and the Christians are now scattering for their life. He is at work for good. You may remember from your history class a man named Oliver Cromwell in England. A man sympathetic to Puritan ideals, and he helped lead the English Civil War. And part of the the goal of that was to bring Protestantism to England. The story is told that Cromwell would send his men to Catholic churches to search for funds to help, you know, uh, uh, to help fund his army and to help fund this growing nation he hoped to to install. And they would come back to Cromwell, and they said, "We didn't find any gold or silver except that which was in the statues of the saints." And Cromwell said, good, we will melt down the saints and we will put them into circulation. And that's what God did here at the persecution of the early church. As a result of persecution, the Christians are scattered and they go about preaching the word. They go out to all the regions of Judea and Samaria and they're preaching the word. You know, it's interesting to note, who's doing the preaching? Not Peter, John, Matthew, Thomas, Barnabas. It was everyone except the apostles. And we're not knocking them down. But Luke says, the twelve stayed back in Jerusalem. The thousands went out to sow the seed of the gospel. The flame began there in Jerusalem with the apostles. And it spread throughout the world by the disciples of Jesus. God was at work. Even when it seemed like Satan was at work and he was succeeding. And just think, the church has survived to this day, and we are proof. And the gospel is still spreading, and we are proof. And Satan is still at work against God's people in his church, and we are proof. He is still, pers- he is still persecuting, and he is still ravaging. And we hear stories from around the world of this persecution and ravaging. But we need to understand Satan is at work here against us and against our church as well. Just think about all those things that compete with your time and your commitment that works against you being having the time and commitment to be faithful to worship in the ministries of this church. Who do you think put that there? Who do you think is behind all these things to compete for you not to go to church on Sunday? Who do you think put all those things there to encourage you and your family to not be involved in ministries of the church? And think about all that's going on in our culture and society that is pushing as hard as it can against God and the faith. Who do you think put that there? And think about how much of the world and its values have seeped into the church and Western society. Who do you think put that there? We look at the world around us and, 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 and outside of our world, so to speak, and other cultures, societies, and, 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 and Satan it seems to be so visibly at work. His work here tends to be more subtle. Right? No, we're not worried about uh, people kicking down the doors of our church right now to drag us off to jail. 
But just because he's working in subtle ways doesn't mean he's not working. I would make the argument that Satan is probably more successful here in America where he's so subtle than where he is around the world where he's not so subtle. All those things set out to compete with your faithfulness to worship and ministries in a culture that's growing decidedly anti-Christian. You know, it's no longer a matter of if, but a matter of when we will suffer outright persecution. And maybe it will end with the kicking down the doors of the church. So what do we do? How, how, how do we prepare for this? What do we do with persecution? What do we do with this ravaging? Well, I want you to think back with me to last week. I want you to think with me to Stephen's persecution. And amidst that persecution, he has a vision of heaven. And in that vision of heaven, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And when we talked about this, that we confess that Jesus sitteth at the right hand of the Father. So why is he standing here? We said for two reasons. Jesus is first standing as king. Something is happening to one of his people. The enemy is at work, and Jesus will deal with the enemy. He's standing as king in sign of protection over his people. But he's standing as shepherd in sign of care of his people. This is one of his sheep. This is a part of his flock. He died for Stephen. And as a shepherd, he cares about that. And it was obvious that vision was a source of comfort to Stephen in the midst of his persecution and his body being ravaged by the stones. And that same vision is meant to be of the same comfort to us because Jesus is still king. And in his providence, he's ruling even now so that all things work for good. Even when bad things happen, he is working for good, even now, even for you and me. So as the subtle workings of Satan are taking place and they're becoming less and less subtle, Jesus is still king. And Jesus is still shepherd. He still cares for you. You're the one he left the 99 for to come back and bring to him. You're the one he went up upon the cross for to shed his blood for. He still cares for you. And he will always lead you on the right path. There's no wrong turns with Jesus. The king always wins. And the shepherd always wins leads and just as that was true for Stephen in the early church is true for us today that is meant to be our comfort Jesus is my king and Jesus is my shepherd and in that comfort we're called to live out our faith that Jesus is king that Jesus is your king and my king and that Jesus is shepherd your shepherd and my shepherd this is one who, who leads and pro, or who, 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 who rules and protects and this is the one who leads and guides and cares and in that comfort we're to be rooted in his word this is the word of our king and our shepherd and we're to be committed to prayer to the one who rules over us and guides us we're to commit our lives to his glory because there's no more glorious king or shepherd we obey him from the great love that he has showed us. We love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and love our neighbors as ourselves because he is the good king and he is the good shepherd. Satan 
is at work. Peter tells us he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you and you and you and me. But Jesus is king. And Jesus is shepherd. And Jesus will always win. And Jesus will always guide his people. So what do we do? We live in the security and assurance of that victory. Of Jesus as our king and shepherd. By living our lives for his glory. And the joy of being his. So no matter persecution. No matter ravaging. We know Jesus is king. And Jesus is shepherd. And Jesus always wins. Let's pray together.